Today's guest is a shero of mine, Lynn Twist. I remember years ago seeing Lynn on Super Soul Sunday with Oprah Winfrey and knowing that she was a woman who would be a shero of mine. Um, I have followed Lynn's work and her writing and her wisdom for many years. I've been so fortunate to get to know Lynn and become friends with her. I am in awe of her commitment. For more than 40 years, Lynn has been a recognized global visionary committed to alleviating poverty, ending world hunger, empowering the status of women and girls, supporting social justice and environmental sustainability. The breadth of Lynn's work ranges from working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta to working with refugees in camps in Ethiopia and the threatened rainforests of the Amazon. I was so fortunate to get to go to the Ecuadorian Amazon uh, with her incredible organization, Pachamama Alliance. She has worked directly with the women who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, she has a deep understanding of global issues, the challenges women and girls face worldwide, people's relationship with money, and the transformation of human consciousness. She is a best-selling author. She wrote a beautiful book called The Soul of Money that changed my life. Uh, and her newest book, Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. It's, it's an astounding book. I love it. I've read it multiple times. I've given it to many friends. I am so grateful to have Lynn on the show today. Welcome, Lynn. And we're so glad you're here. Hi, Lynn. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Grace. It's always a joy and a pleasure and a delight and special to talk to you. I always love our time together. Um, our podcast is really about creating next chapters. As, as you know, I have dedicated my life to helping women create next chapters that are meaningful and beautiful and committed. Um, so it's such a joy and inspiration to have you, uh, who has been a shero for me on continuing the journey of Living a Committed Life, which is the amazing title of your latest book. Um, I just wanted to honor you as, again, a, a shero for all of us uh, that are really putting our leadership out there um, and figuring out what to do next during a time that there are a lot of next chapters being created. Um, so thank you for being here, most of all. Thank you. And I, I, I think the biggest thing that I took away from your book is just the, the central theme of commitment. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, for me, it has been during hard times, it has been such an anchor in kind of finding our way again. And I would love to know how you knew that this was the topic you wanted to explore and, and how it relates to our times. Well, it's, um, there's a lot of, as you know, blessings and luck in life when you're a uh, when you're in the zone, things sort of show up on the right timing and in the right place and the right topic. So I was uh, resistant to writing another book because I, I don't find myself as a natural writer. I'm a communicator, but I'm not. I'm I'm not solitary. So writing a book is kind of a solitary thing. And right. Um, so I did uh, the Soul of Money with a collaborative writer, and I did uh, creating. Um, I created a, living a committed life with a collaborative writer, and the timing was just. I, I, I want to say lucky, but I actually think it was more like a divine intervention because I was going to start a book on the Sophia century, which I know you and I have talked about yes, yes. this time when um, this hundred year cycle, when women are, and the feminine is really, really important to all these problems that we have and the challenges that we need to get through. Um, uh, but I couldn't get that to come out. <laughs> it was kind of like, Ugh. It, was, it was just not working. And um but I, I ended up realizing that there are so many stories that I have that uh, want to be told. And my friend, Jack Canfield, who who I say in the book, helped me get, get them out, um, uh, then became the sort of central theme of a new book. And then they sort of fell into this theme of living a committed life. And it turns out that this book has been come out and has been created for this time. I didn't do it for this time exactly. I mean, I wasn't aware that I was doing it for this time. But now that I, here we are in post-COVID, post-pandemic, recreation, regeneration of the world, really, 
uh, in the midst of a climate crisis, a political crisis, an economic crisis, an education crisis, health crisis, you name it, every crisis uh, that you can think of is happening. While we're regenerating ourselves, uh, I find that this book can really be timely and useful because what people need to do, I think, or at least what I need to do, and I think you found this to be true yourself, is recommit to life, recommit to a life bigger than your own comfort, right. a life bigger than your own personal desires and wants and needs, a life that's in service of the world that is in crisis, a life that's in service of being useful and addressing and being someone who gets on the playing field to make a difference with what's going on. And um, and so it, it ends up being perfect timing. And I I didn't plan it that way, uh, certainly not consciously, but you know how they wonderful, what some wonderful person said, we make plans and, and then God decides what's going to happen. And, and exactly. you could say that's what this is. Um, so the answer to that question is, uh, is that the universe made me do it and made me do it in this, in this, uh, in this timely way for, to meet the challenges we face right now and the challenges we'll have for the next probably 50 years. Um, and what's going to get them through, what's going to get us as a, as a species, really, I'm talking species level now, uh, is what you opened with that, um, when you are really, really committed, it gets you through the whatever it is that's in the way. Exactly. And when you're not, you can't get through it. It takes you down. So that's what we need now. We need commitment, strong, powerful, deep, unyielding commitment. And with that, we can get through anything. I couldn't, oh my gosh, I couldn't agree more. And we need to be reminded um, because when things are hard, of course we, of course we wobble, of course we waver. And it's knowing that we can again find that grounding anchor again. And what I really appreciate about what you said is that so often we make a plan for how we'll contribute or how we'll express or how we'll create. And that plan, it doesn't mean that that it's a bad plan. It just may not be the plan for right now. Mm -hmm. And when we're listening and aware and can follow like you did, you know, follow the the voices and leads and and inspiration that guides you, then you can make the creation and expression that's right for right now, even if it wasn't your initial plan. So I, I think that's really important for all of us to remember mm -hmm. that things things may shift and change. And that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, even when it's hard. Yeah. I think that one thing that, um, you know, I certainly have struggled with when things were, like I said, wobbly or a little darker, or certainly even in, in times of, of grief, um, or when things really didn't go according to plan. I know that my confidence took a hit. And I know that many people, many listeners and, and people in our community have felt their confidence really waver. And we can start feeling like we're just not enough, not special enough, not smart enough, not good enough to make a commitment, to make a difference. And you talk about how ordinary people can become extraordinary. And it's just, for me, that was, uh, or ordinary people are extraordinary, I think is the, is the way you put it. Um, when was like, will you talk about that a little bit, both as it relates to when was the first time that you realized that you were meant for extraordinary work and how have you been inspired by people that may call themselves just ordinary people doing extraordinary work? Um, oh gosh. Well, I think, I think that's, it's true for all of us that at some point in our life, what we thought was a breakdown became the source of a breakthrough. And, you know, sometimes it was deliberately turned into a, a breakthrough, a, a, a breakdown. And other times the breakdown would create the conditions where we found a way to break through. Right. You know, I'm, 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 I'm just so aware that, um, that I've been fortunate, but also it's, it, it, it is that I've been fortunate, but I also have taken misfortune and and turned it into something that could be useful. And I think that's the kind of key that you're that you're looking for here because 
when I think about, you know, think about Malala, for example, the young girl who got shot in the face, she got shot in the face, right? getting out of a car, trying to go to school. And, and that could have killed her, number one, or could have crippled her capacity, not just her body, but her capacity to be of use for her whole life. She could have said, God, I'm going to never go to school again, or not even going to think about getting educated because it's too dangerous, et cetera. Right. No, she took that and now she, she won the Nobel prize. Now that that's just an astounding shift from being shot in the face as a schoolgirl to winning the Nobel prize. And that's not that many years later. Um, now, not of all of us are Malala, but I, I'm just saying everybody has that opportunity with every breakdown, even a bad day. I started today <laughs> in an I don't want to mood. Have you ever been in an I don't want to mood? Uh, I yes, I have. <laughs> I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to do yoga. I didn't want to meditate. I didn't want to do my first meeting. I didn't want to. I just wasn't in an I don't want to mood. And um, my first meeting was at 6 a.m., so I had to get up at 5. And um, when the guy who was leading the first meeting, and it was his meeting, not mine. So thank God I wasn't in charge. <laughs> he did what often we all do is a check-in. And I decided I'm going to tell him the truth. And I told him I'm in this, I don't want to mood. And I'm, I don't know, it'll pass because I always get up for it, but right. And I don't want to. And so we ended up doing a whole call on, I don't want to. And it was so inspiring. <laughs> it was so, he took my mood and helped me transform it into a study, like a meditation on the mood I don't want to. I mean, just so incredible. So every single person has the opportunity to become extraordinary out of being ordinary by making a commitment beyond what you think you can do. Someone said yesterday, or maybe it was on Saturday, um, it's time to dream really, really big. It's time to dream really big because the problems we face are really big. And what will outdo them is big, giant dreams that we get committed to that'll pull us into the future. Um, the same person is Rev D. I think you know her. She said, pain pushes until vision pulls. Yes. Pain pushes until vision pulls. And once you have a clear vision, a dream that's big, um, not a plan, by the way. Um, it, it, if it if a dream doesn't scare you, it's probably a plan, and that doesn't necessarily inspire you. It gives you a roadmap, but you know. So, what I really mean when I say everybody's extraordinary, everybody has the capacity. Everybody who considers themselves ordinary, which you know, obviously everybody is unique, has the capacity to become extraordinary. I think by making a commitment larger than their own life, larger than their own comfort, larger than their own life starring them. And when you do that, as Mahatma Gandhi did, as Martin Luther King did, as Malala did, as you've done, as I've done, as Jane Goodall did, you know, it suddenly seems like these people are so extraordinary. They must have been born like that. No, they were born ordinary. Right. And they made a huge, amazing commitment. And then the commitment comes back into your life and shapes you into who you need to be to fulfill the commitment. The commitment becomes what shapes your capacities, what draws out of you your best treasures, what has you realize things you didn't even know you could do, and brings you the people, the relationships, the circumstances, the resources, the power to fulfill the commitment. Right. So that's really the point of the whole book is to inspire and catalyze and ignite people to make commitments larger than their own life, which will reach back into their life and give them freedom, fulfillment, meaning, relationships they couldn't have dreamed of or couldn't have planned of without that big commitment. So, so true. And I think there's, there is a misconception um, and I feel like you are helping to debunk the misconception. There is a misconception that when we are committed, when we are leaders, when we are making change, that we never falter and mm -hmm. we never have a bad day or a, I don't want to do it kind of day or never get discouraged, never lose confidence. And I, and what I've always really appreciated about you is that in your 
leadership and your storytelling, you're also very vulnerable. And it really helps people to know that all of us, even those of us that are, you know, deep seated in our commitments, of course, we have days where we don't think we can do it, right? <laughs> of course we do. And I don't want to day. And of course we have days we don't want to do it. <laughs> I remember um, at our last event together earlier this year when your book had first come out, um, I was so lucky to, to get to interview you in person, which is um, always always a delight, but particularly special now after the last few years of not being able to do that. But there was this brilliant and sparkly, amazing woman in the audience at the end who asked a question that really stuck with me. Um, and I was proud of her for asking it because it's it's brave to admit. And I know we've all had this question at some time or another in our lives. But her question was, what if I know I want to live a committed life, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what I meant to do. And what if I don't know? And how, how do you advise people to, I, so often people come to me looking for clarity on what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not always sure that that's exactly what they are really looking for, but mm-hmm. I'm curious what you think and what you say when people say, I want to be committed, but I don't know how, I don't know what that means. Um Well, uh, let's see, a couple of ways to answer that. First of all, sometimes that's, the state of being that they're in uh, because they're uh, kind of distracted by their own um, fears about themselves. And so they can't see so clearly. Um, You know, there's this, we all have an inner compass. We all actually do know why we're here. I think, I mean, you know, I can't prove this. So I agree with you. (laughs) But um, I think there is, it's in it's in everybody I and mean, whoever uh that woman was it's in her she does know it may be covered over with despair with discouragement with some trauma from some failures or from being confused because of a relationship that just ended or you know it it who we are gets covered over it's almost like right. you know obfuscated obscured for us but so a good coach or a good um, facilitator like you what we do is help people release some of that so they can find in themselves what their core um, mission and purpose is. Because I believe if you're alive on t- today, especially right now, this decade, 2020 to 2030, the decisive decade, many people call it and I call it that. If you're here, you've got a job to do. And right. and, and it's no accident that you're here. And it's in you. And, and I often say to people, well, what breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? What's really when, you know, a lot of things are wrong. A lot of things are upsetting. A lot of things are annoying. A lot of things make us mad. A lot of things are irritating. A lot of things are like not okay, but what breaks your heart? Right. And what breaks your heart? Let's say you find that or find those things. And then what makes your heart sing? are related usually. What breaks your heart and what makes your heart sing? When you put those two together, that's often why you're here. So for example, if if child abuse just breaks your heart and every time you hear about it, you can't hardly stand it. Now that's true for everybody, yes. But for some people, that is the most heartbreaking thing in the world. Right. And what gives them joy, what makes their heart sing is working with children. So how about putting those two together? Can you work with children who've been abused to help them heal and find their way and know that it's not their fault or, you know, et cetera. So, you know, what breaks your heart is the pollution of of the river that you love, that you've been a kayaker on for your entire life. And suddenly there's a dam and there's pollution. And then what, what, makes your heart sing is being in the wild. So maybe these two things come together. I'm I'm not saying that's a formula. That's a little bit too formulaic, but they're clues like that. Also, who are your heroes and heroines, particularly when you were little? Um, Was it Jane Goodall? Was it, you know, was it Oprah Winfrey? Was it Michelle Obama? Was it, you know, in my case, you know, Robert Kennedy was a huge 
hero for me. Martin Luther King was a huge hero for me. So I, uh, you know, and, and Malcolm X was a huge hero for me. Robert Kennedy was a huge hero for me. All four of them were assassinated when I was a young woman. Um, four out of my five years, four of them were assassinated. And I, it broke my heart every single time. It was like a knife in my heart. Mm -hmm. I knew that I'd work in some way with social justice. Um, so our, our, our universe, I'll just say, if you're paying attention and not tied up in your own story too much, if you pay attention, the universe serves up to you. Here's what's yours to do. Yes. Here's your dharma. Here's your bodhisattva vow. It gives it to you over and over and over again if you're paying attention. Um, so, and, yes, and I, if you're if you're willing to act, if you're willing to willing and brave, and present enough to act, I yeah. agree. I agree. It it all of the cues and clues are right there for us. Probably even louder and more obvious than we realize. It's just right. that when we're paying attention. And, and I really agree with you in just what you were just saying and what you said earlier that, um, you know, it's what breaks your heart. It's often grief. It's, mm -hmm. you know, I, I have certainly found that the greatest transformation happens in the darkest times. And certainly for me, um, during periods of grief is when it, it just became so intense to find a light to find a, a reason that all of these, you know, things that cause sadness and heartbreak to find some guide in mm -hmm. those. So, you know, it's, but it's also, mm -hmm. this is where the universe is tricky because it's also that that's a really difficult time mm -hmm. uh, to muster energy. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I guess collectively or societally, you know, we've gone through a collective grief and I'm curious how, you feel like we can maintain our commitments or, I mean, I'll say goals, but I mean that lightly. I mean more like an anchored commitment or that vision or that deep seated, deeper why. Uh, how do we maintain that when we're faced with loss or setbacks? And how do you recommend people break free from some of the fear and insecurity that can certainly come up? Um, of course, when things are, are related to breaking our heart. Well, um, if you see yourself as an instrument of something larger than your own life, then you know it's important to nourish and take care of this instrument. If if you see yourself as all about you, then and you know get you get discouraged, then that just takes you down. There's nowhere to go. Right. But if you end up somehow realizing I'm a useful human being, there's people depending on me. I'm making a difference with my life. I'm, I'm an instrument of something larger than my own life starring me, then you make sure you stay in health and well-being, both health in terms of your body, but well-being, meaning the well of being that is the source of your life. And that means you listen to podcasts like this one. You take courses like you go to the Harvary. Um, that means you, you know, eat well, you exercise. That means you you um, read books. Uh, that means you keep growing. That means you know that the this is life is really all about learning and growing, and it's it's a big giant school. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, and the the job of being useful. If you know you're useful, if you commit to being useful, one of the jobs of a useful person is to keep yourself in shape to be useful, and so. There's a, um, a responsibility. I'm not going to call it an obligation because that sounds too heavy, but a responsibility and actually the privilege of keeping yourself in good shape. And I'm, you know, sometimes like this morning when I was in an I don't want to thing, I have a full day of thing. I had my my I had my podcast with Grace today. I can't be in I don't want to mood for Grace, you know. So I had to get it, I had to get myself out of that. And I love that I can't stay there. I love yes. that I can't stay there. I love that I have people living in my house. Um, I always have people living in my house, including my family, uh, that that keep me from, you know, being like so. Um, it doesn't I don't have the right to be in a bad mood around the people in my home. I, I don't have the, that right because I need to show up in the kitchen and make it, make it a great day for everybody. And that makes it a great day for me, for God's sake. Yes. You know, it's not, 
for that purpose, but it ends up serving me too. Yeah. So um, it's it's really, really incredible to know and live in, I can make a difference with my life and I'm committed to making that difference because it makes you become the person you need to be to do that. That That's what I said already, but I'll just say it again. It's important. It's important. Yeah. And, and then daily, that you daily need to do that. And then, you know, if you have a bad day, which I do, and I can't get out of it, I call my friend Tracy or my friend Sarah, and I do what we call a spring cleaning, where I, I, they give, they, they stay stone Buddha like, and they just ask me, what, uh, what are you angry about? What are you upset about? What's not working for you? What do you want to whine about? What do you want to complain about? And just gives me a safe space and they don't agree or disagree. They just say, and what else? And what else? Until I empty myself mm. of all the whining and the moaning and the complaining and the blaming and all that stuff. So I have a space to unload all of that rather than harbor it or try to try to not do it. And then, and then I, I spend the next, you know, chapter after that, what I'm grateful for and what I feel blessed about. So, you know, there's techniques like that, and I'm sure you use them yourself, where when you just need to unload, you do it, but not in a way that toxifies everybody around you, in a way that you go to somebody who's centered and clear and clean and who can handle you being off course and right. just let you outflow and unload or spring clean until you get to a place where you realize, I am so fortunate. I am so fortunate. So and and you you it is possible to do those things alone. And there are things that you can do to support your well-being alone. But I think it's really beautiful that the example that you used is about reaching out and about, you know, co-collaborating, co-creating even our lives, even, even our encouragement. I mean, that's something that I have just seen work time and time again, when we reach out and we're honest and we ask for support and we ask to be heard, uh, it, it changes that tenacity or kind of gives us back that strength and perseverance to go, you know, build and create and express that deeper vision. So mm -hmm. I, I love that you shared that you, you know, that you call these amazing women in your lives um, because it's, it's interesting. I just, when I started the Hivery, I thought it was true that we could, you know, that we could do even more extraordinary things in support of each other. But then I have millions of data points now that show me that it's true. You know, when we have each other, everything is different. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. love that example. Mm -hmm. I, one of the things that you talked about, um, you know, meditating and getting up and doing yoga. And it, it reminded me, I, one of the things I've done over the last few years that I've just kind of noticed that I've been doing, maybe I've been doing it all along is saying yes to things without knowing why. One of the things I said yes to recently was, um, a, a 200 hour yoga teacher training. Ooh, I really, wow. I was, it was amazing. I just completed it. I you loved did. it. Yes. It was Wonderful. so yes. With my <laughs> beloved teacher, Leslie Desaulnier. And I didn't know why I said yes. Mm -hmm. I really was like, I have no idea why I'm doing this other than I, I, I feel this pull. And another time that that happened was with you actually, that, um, in 2019, you were doing a women's journey connecting modern women leaders with indigenous women leaders in the Ecuadorian Amazon through your beautiful organization, Pachamama. And it was the same thing where I said yes to the trip in, when was it? September, 2019. Mm -hmm. And I there was a lot about that trip where I was like, the timing is for my, for my business and my work, the timing coincided with another big milestone for the business. And I remember my first thought was like, I can't do that. The timing's crazy, but I found myself just saying yes and not knowing why. And it changed my life. It, mm -hmm. it changed my leadership. It changed my view of the world. And I just wondered if you would share a little bit about how your experiences in the Amazon have impacted your work and how they inform your mentorship. Will you just talk a bit about, about your experience in the Amazon and why you started Pachamama and some of the beautiful stories around that? Well, Pachamama Alliance is a, 
uh, is a, a, a came from a kind of a mystical journey that I was privileged to to be on, where I uh, was called by the Achwar people, as you know so well, Grace, and um, and so was uh, called to the the heart of the world, really, the most biodiverse place on this planet is at the base of the Andes at the sacred headwaters of the Amazon rainforest. And there's um, very extraordinary indigenous nations. They're called nations now. We would sometimes call them tribes. They don't like that term so much. Um, that had been in uh, voluntary non-contact, you know, isolated on purpose from the modern world. And uh, when we were called for what's called first contact at their request, uh, we had the opportunity to interact with indigenous people who were intact, uh, un, unwounded, you know, right. suffering from being in, in horrible um, uh, oppression by, you know, they, they, they were living in the forest happily, healthy, well, all their traditions intact. And had survived the conquistadors, all the 500 years of colonialism, and just were just fine, but knew that the modern world was encroaching and eventually they'd need to face it. And um, and so we were among the first people to actually, from the modern world, to actually be with them. And it was an incredible privilege. And out of that, I realized I needed to say yes to this. I'm really trying to follow the lead of your of your question because um I said no to it at first. I mean, I didn't want to go. I didn't know where Ecuador really was. I didn't know anything about the Amazon. I wasn't an environmentalist. I was working in Africa and Asia. So I I said, no, thank you. No, thank you. But it didn't, the visions didn't stop until right. I went. And then when I did go, the request to work with the Achuar and begin a modern world indigenous uh, partnership uh, was daunting, but exciting. But I was, I had my hands feel with the hunger project working on ending world hunger and my husband had two companies but we somehow couldn't not do it and so we tried to do everything and eventually i got malaria which sounds terrible and it was but it, it helped me realize no the universe wants me to do this next chapter and as you talked about your work is helping women with the next chapter i resisted this chapter um until i surrendered to it right um, and uh, I, and now that I've surrendered to it, I realized, oh, my God, can I imagine what, it, what my life would be like if I hadn't said yes to this? So what I've learned from this is that the universe knows better than I do about what's mine to do in some cases. And um, indigenous wisdom and indigenous people have had a profound and a life altering impact on my life, but right. also on my work. And given that I'm a conduit, a communicator, you know, kind of a big mega megaphone kind of person. Uh, that wisdom now has been proliferated around the world through our Pachamama Alliance courses, through our um, our uh, teachings, through my speeches, through my book, um, my two books. So um, I'm I'm very impacted by it, and um, and I'll just say, being connected with what's truly authentically uh the natural who we areness yes through the indigenous people they don't they're not fighting to defend the forest i used to think that and that's what we were there to support them but i realized after knowing them and working with them and becoming one with them myself they are of the forest fighting for itself that's right. a very different way to be not, you know, because as the white savior kind of um, way that many of us were raised, and I, I, I admit to that, um, doesn't is not a fit for the Pachamama Alliance. It's not a bunch of white savers going in and saving the indigenous people. No, it's far from that. It is the forest speaking loudly for itself and for the earth herself through the indigenous inhabitants who are one with her and we were too way back and yes. we can remember that it's not like taking on preserving the forest or taking on preserving the natural world it's almost like remembering that we are of the forest we are of the earth we are of the natural world and from there everything shows up so differently <laughs> 
it's not like, oh, we need to stop doing this. We need to stop doing that. Oh, that's bad and wrong. And that's bad and wrong. No, it's like what is naturally coming through is what wants to happen next. And um, that's really, really, really different. And I'm, I'm still grappling with it because the culture we live in is is a colonial culture. Whether we admit it or not, we still live in a colonial culture. And um, I'm one of the people who's, who was born in, 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 in with white skin, but we're still, we're, we're and, and into a, a colonial culture that, that I didn't create and that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't even support uh, consciously, but I am part of it. So unpacking all of that has been so much more than I ever knew it would be um, and so much more beautiful than I ever imagined it could be um, because it's really about remembering, not about changing or, um, you know, getting rid of um, but purifying and cleansing is different than getting rid of, you know? So I, I feel so um, grateful to the universe and to the uh, Achuar, the Zapra, the Kofan, the, the, the Warani, the, the Zapra people for, for staying so true yes. to themselves and who they are. And, um, and even though your visit with them uh, was years ago, it'll always be with you for the rest of your life. You you won't be the same person you were that you went there. I mean, you are the same person, but you are more in touch with the person that you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, and it does stay, the experience stays very deeply with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the night before we went into the Amazon, um, you did as you did a zoom where you did a zoom call with all of, there were 14 oh, of yeah. us on the trip oh, and you yeah. kind of zoomed in on um, right before we, we were going to get on these tiny little planes and flying over uh, into the Amazon rainforest where you look down. And I do remember, it just looks like broccoli as far as you can see. It's so <laughs> beautiful of being above that canopy. But I remember you gave us this um, very profound advice and I've, I've actually used it in my teachings as well. But you said that our 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 most consequential assignment was to fall in love with every single person that we encountered on our journey, including each other. And you were very clear and you said it's not about falling in love with some of the people or a few groups of the people, but opening your heart enough that you fall in love with every single person that you encounter so you can see the beauty even deeper. Mm-hmm. And it. I just, we were silent when you said it because it's so simple and yet so rare, mm-hmm. right? To just, to go into a journey and an experience with such an open heart of like, I will fall in love. And it changed the trip. It really did. It changed the trip for me because I took the assignment very seriously. And the people that I met on that journey um, in, you know, from men and women and children and some of the indigenous women leaders um like narcissa uh she just i i mean you take all of the talk about commitment i mean she has um led an absolutely unbelievably impactful um organization for for and by and led by indigenous women um but it was just, it was so profoundly moving from an experience standpoint and your assignment just, it changed me forever. It, I use it in every class I do, every workshop I do. Um, I tell people about the story of you sending us into this journey to fall in love with everyone and wow. how that changed the experience. It was mm. really beautiful. Mm. It, it's it's really, um, I learned a lot of that from Mother Teresa because um, she saw Christ in every face, you know, even the most brutal dictators or the most distasteful wealthy entitled people or right. um she saw Christ in every face and I I thought God is that possible is it possible for me to feel that way and rather than Christ I I use a different metaphor really falling in love you don't have to like someone to fall in love with them 
you know, you can That's not, so they, they can be people you wouldn't, wouldn't be naturally drawn to, or maybe wouldn't um, want to spend a lot of time with them, but you can, you can love them. And it's really incredible. Love is so distinct. Love is so uh, generous. Uh, love is so generative and it's so generous. Um, and it's different than like, like is, you know, do I, or don't I, or right. bad, or it has so much, um, let's say baggage a little bit, but love is so pure and, um, yes. and no matter what that that's possible. And I remember mother, now that I'm mentioning her, mother Teresa said this beautiful thing, the unadulterated love of one person can nullify the hatred of millions. Have I ever said that to you? Not to me, but I, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And that, you know, it's no so one true. can, you, you can't get the data on that. You know, you can't do some data analysis. The unadulterated love of one person can nullify the hatred of millions. Mm. Who knows if there's any truth to that or what I say? Yes, absolutely. That's true. You know, and that capacity to love and to love unconditionally, no matter what the circumstances is, I think the goal of everybody's life, really, right. uh, we all know that ultimately, wouldn't that be great? And I think in those trips, in the container of the forest, in the container of our indigenous uh, partners, in the container of living uh, together and sleeping in the same place together, you know, it's like going to camp when you're little, you, you know, you got to get along with some, your bunkmates. Um, but it's deliberate, it's conscious, it's 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 actually a an assignment to do what is actually ultimately natural to who we are. Um yes. yeah. So yeah. It's so I I mean, and it's so interesting to me that something that even watching your face change like light up and talk about like it's so expansive and so possible and so pure. And yet we have this notion that there's number one, that we're afraid that we just won't get enough. We won't, you know, we won't get our way if we, you know, like oh, there's not enough love to go around. We won't get what we need. Someone's out to get us. And, and it kind of, um, I, I think that that's a, that's a collective. You talk about that. You talk about the toxic myths that keep us stuck and struggling. And those toxic myths are the opposite of love. They're, they can be, um, they can be remedied with love. Will you just talk about those? Uh, the the I just I found them so helpful because it is whether it's on an individual level or a collective level, there there are these things that hold us down. Will you talk about those for a second? Well, I I, I talk in my first book, The Soul of Money, a lot about this, and also in the second book, and I talk about it all the time. So I'll I'll give you a little blast of the toxins yes. of scarcity that we live in a condition of thinking that is an unconscious, unexamined condition of thinking uh, that everybody lives in and there's no exceptions. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really saying something quite strong, yes. but it is this, the water we swim in, which is an unconscious, unexamined belief that there's not enough to go around. And it's the toxic myth of scarcity, scarcity of resources, scarcity of everything, scarcity of sleep, scarcity of of you know time scarcity of money scarcity of this scarcity of that right we don't really look out in the world and assess it and say there's not enough of this no it, it's where we come from and the way we think in the consumer culture because it's kind of bred into us yes. uh, by the culture we live in and there's three toxic myths to that unconscious unexamined belief system uh and what i call a lie actually so i'm going to say it real boldly and the first is there's not enough. The unconscious belief that there's not enough to go around and someone's always going to be left out creates an us and a them reality that we get stuck in for our whole lives. There's not enough. The second one is more is better. More of anything and everything is better. So we collect too many papers and too many things and too many clothes and too much stuff. And we eat too much and we, you know, we're just overwhelmed with stuff. Um, so more is better is another toxic myth, not toxic myth number two. So there's not enough to toxic myth number one. Toxic myth number two, more is better, which has which is driving us into practically extinction. And toxic myth number three is that's just the way that it is. 
And that's just the way that it is. Sounds kind of harmless, but it's the worst one because it holds those other two in place. So we don't question, is there really not enough to go around? Well, maybe there's enough for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. And more is better, more is better, more is better. Well, maybe I have exactly what I need right now and I don't need anything more. Um, And that's just the way it is. Well, maybe it's not that way. I want to question this. I don't want to buy into this too fast. I don't want to get resigned to it too fast. I don't want to give up too fast. So um, the toxic myths of scarcity are what most people don't even know they're thinking from, not what they, not the content of their thoughts only, but where they're thinking from. And once you release yourself from that, what you see is, wow, there's enough for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. What you see is, oh my God, there's so many opportunities to make a difference with what I already have. I don't need more. What I have the opportunity to do is appreciate what I have and then share it. And and then what becomes overwhelming is this experience of deep and profound appreciation for what's already there, which you don't even notice when you're chasing more. So the the principle of what I call sufficiency is if you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, which is what we're brainwashed to want more of, it frees up oceans of energy to turn and pay attention to what you have. When you pay attention to what you have, when you love what you have, when you nourish what you have, it expands. Or another way of saying it that's shorter that I know you know so well is what you appreciate appreciates. What you appreciate, appreciates. So um, that's the really the main subject of the Soul of Money book. Yes. Uh, it's really finding our way to remember sufficiency, wholeness, completeness, enoughness, which is who we really are. And these can be such guides for us. I mean, I know getting back to our earlier conversation, I just, I know so many people that have built initiatives or nonprofits or businesses or art or books based on the realization that it doesn't have to be this way. Mm-hmm. Just it, 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 just because, you know, just because it's been that way before, it doesn't mean that what it, that that's what it is. Like that, that, that notion that you said is kind of the most important one of that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And when we realize that it, you know, if there's something that breaks our heart, that anyone has ever responded and said, that's just the way it is. I mean, that can be our North star for creating our committed life. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. it's really profound. And it, it's, it's actually really helpful, very helpful to know that these, how these myths, number one, are toxic. They are lies, um, but they can serve as our guide in a way of defying them, of proving Mm -hmm. that it isn't just how it is and there is enough to go around. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really appreciate, I I appreciate, and of course I appreciate what you appreciate appreciates because it's so, (laughs) it's a guide. It's a guide. Um, And so many of our listeners are looking to create their next chapters and they want to, they want to live the book title. They want to live a committed life with like artists, like with honesty and vulnerability and creativity and, and truth. Um, so for you as an individual, what does creating your meaningful next chapter look like? What, what, what's on the horizon for you? What do you um, think? Oh, that's so interesting. You're asking me that because I'm right in the middle of a of a, a two day planning meeting. One day yesterday and another day tomorrow. So we have this day in between. Um, for the for the um, Soul of Money Institute, and also I'm in a planning process or a succession. Some people would call it. We call it continuity process with Pachamama Alliance. Mm. Um, so I'm in, engaged in, um, in, and I think many organizations are, I know, you know, you are probably too, post-pandemic, resetting, reimagining, recreating, redesigning, rethinking, resourcing, and regenerating our institutions, our organizations, our, our, our professions, our vocations, and our, our lives, really. And um, 
And so the next chapter for me really is unfolding. I'm um, I'm really um, in, in, in inspired by the people that I work with, both at the Pachamama Alliance, the Indigenous Peoples of the Amazon, our team in in South America, and um, and then I'm totally touched and inspired by my colleagues, my partners at the Soul of Money Institute, and how competent, capable they are, and how how much they own the work that I was the founder of, but it belongs to them now, not, not belongs to me. It's not like, okay, here, but it belongs to them as much as it belongs to me. And that's a different way of seeing the future because it's a collective visioning that we are doing. Um, I'm ultimately responsible. Yes. And I'm willing to be, and I love that role. At the same time, the ownership is so deep and so great. And it's almost like the the leadership of the of this period of of time in history is is collective leadership, communities um, relying on each other's wisdom uh, as much as you rely on the wisdom of the founder or the leader or the person who's designated in charge. Um, you know, the, the DAO, uh, the DAO uh, distributed autonomous organizations are in, in vogue and in fashion. And it's hard. It's easier to just call the shots. But that is not, um, doesn't feel right now to me. Um, or at least doesn't feel like the only way to go. Uh, Certainly when it comes right down to it, if someone needs to make the decision, I'm willing to do it. Uh, and I'm probably the one to do it. But there's so much wisdom in my colleagues. And I'm so, right now, I'm in this chapter, I'll say, of just being blown away by them. Mm. Loving them in a new way. Falling in love with their uh, their competencies, their un- their understanding. And you know, there in many cases there are different generations that I'm talking to all the time. Um, business people in their 40s who are just in the upswing, uh, people in their 50s and 60s who are um, who are who've kind of made their mark and are looking for the next way to really swing out. Uh, I'm work. I'm also working with enormously wealthy families who. Are, are you know feel guilty about the money and are not sure exactly where to place it um and whether or not to spend it out right now when the, we're what we're in such trouble rather than kind of save it for the principal uh for the future generation so I'm in I'm in inquiry myself about the next chapter but I like that the next chapter is being co-created and it's a collaborative chapter for yes. sure it's a collaborative community, collective uh, future that we are, we're all creating together. So that's, that's my answer. That's a beautiful answer. And it's, a, it's just, a, it's also a beautiful indication and metaphor for, I, like you said, this is, um, I appreciate and honor that you are doing this in your organization. And I feel like in doing this in your organization, it creates an example for all of us that the world is operating differently. Like we are shifting to this realization that the way that we used to do things uh, with a, you know, one leader, one person in charge and one, you know, this is how it is kind of mentality um, is no longer serving us and that there is collective strength and community. Um, the, you know, the impact of community, whether it's in your organization or your local community is just, it's profound. Yeah. Right. That's true. And it's very, um, it's much more fun, actually, uh, to work in in collaboration. I've always been a collaborator. I've never done anything by myself. But um, but I, I really feel like that's the call of our time is for us to find a way to bridge divides and work together and allow people to have their own view and really yes. listen deeply to what that is, even if you don't agree with it. There's so much to learn from each other. Hundred percent. Yeah. Well, then I'm so grateful for you and your wisdom and your time. I will ask you one last question. Um, is there, you know, as you think about some of the listeners um, on, you know, that are that are wondering 
what's next for them and creating their next chapter and want to live a committed life. Is there any last uh, words of wisdom or piece of advice that you would like to share for those of us that are all of us in some ways creating our next chapters and wanting to do that in a committed way? Well, um, there's a wonderful Howard Thurman quote, which most people know, but I'll just say it. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive, because what the world needs are people who've come alive. So that's one answer. Yes. Another answer is kind of the paradox of that, which is if you're alive today, you came into the world at a time when it's it's an all hands on deck time. And it's this is the greatest participation event in the history of humanity. It's going to take all of us, everybody playing their role to get through these next 25, 30, 40 years. And I think everybody knows that in their heart of hearts. So what's yours to do has never been more important for you to find that, for you to ask the universe to help you discover it. And often the place to go to, to be inspired, to find your own personal dharma is in nature. And it doesn't have to be on a camping trip in the Sierras or, you know, sailing to Tahiti, it can be in your backyard. It can be walking uh, to the nearest park and sitting under a tree. It can be, you know, being outdoors uh, and really asking the universe to guide you and particularly asking, you know, I've just been working with Suzanne Simard, the great forest ecologist who wrote Finding the Mother Tree and mm -hmm. is the scientist who discovered that the uh, trees in the forests are actually uh, in, a, in a very, very complex and sophisticated communication network with each other. Um, and I, I feel like we can all tap into that uh, because we are creatures of the earth, not just walking on the earth. And um, the footprint, you know, my friend Reb D says, there's a, we're, we've left a footprint on people and we've left a footprint on the pat, pat, planet. Both footprints are, um, are inappropriate. We need to realize we are of the people, of the planet. Yes. And when you think from there, see what is your work, what is your calling, what makes your heart sing, what breaks your heart, and then go and do it. And often it's in the action that it becomes clear rather than in the creative uh, imagining. Uh, but just get out there and get your hands dirty, get involved participate um you know that 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 really really is what is wanted is your participation yes yes and we have to say yes we have to raise our hands and stand up and use our voices and and be committed mm -hmm. so lynn thank you so much your words are always a treasure for mm -hmm. for me and for so many others i i so appreciate your wisdom and your time and your commitment. Um, everybody, you must read Living a Committed Life uh, by the incredible Lynn Twist. Um, Lynn, you've just been an absolute hero for me. So thank you for this conversation, for many, many others. Um, and thank you for inspiring me so much. Mm, thank you, Grace. And thank you for your beautiful work. And thank you for the Hivery and the life that you lead, which is exquisite and touching and beautiful and making a huge difference. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank okay. You. I hope you found this episode helpful, idea provoking and inspiring, especially if you're in the midst of creating or clarifying your next chapter. I can't even put into words how much I appreciate you, your vulnerability, your stories of creating a life and meaningful work amidst adversity, grief, ever-changing and challenging times, and of course, life's peaks and uncertain valleys. You are seekers, wisdom sharers, and artists of life, and together we can build meaningful next chapters that feel aligned with who we really are, what we're put on this earth to do, and how we can make a difference one human being at a time. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And I would love it if you could leave a review for The Art of What's Next. If you know someone who wants to create a new chapter 
or who would appreciate this episode, please share it with them. You can text it to them or email them the link or post about the show on your Instagram. If you want more help in creating your own meaningful next chapter, join the Hivery newsletter to get inspiration, stories, and resources to help you create your next chapter like an artist. Sign up at thehivery.com forward slash podcast or at the link in the show notes.